Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. You can't ignore the serious failures. The fact that lots of the beaches around England have been closed several times in the past year is absolutely appalling, really. We paid for services and they haven't been delivered. Welcome to Political Fix, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times with me, Lucy Fisher, the FT's Whitehall editor. You heard there the FT's Jill Plimmer talking about the mess in the water industry. Well, this week we're racing towards summer recess. There isn't much going on in the Commons, but the news has been non-stop. Thames water looks like it could go bust. Plus, the government's got a new plan to boost the NHS workforce. Meanwhile, the PM's been told by the Court of Appeal that his flagship plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda is illegal. And then, as if there wasn't enough going on, there are all the by-election campaigns. Here to discuss some of the big themes this week, we've got the FT's UK chief political commentator and columnist, Robert Shrimsley. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Robert. And the FT columnist, Miranda Green. Hi, Miranda. Hello, Lucy. So, Robert, what's been on your mind this week? Well, apart from the things that we're going to be discussing anyway, I think one of the stories that's really interested me has been the demise of the Conservatives' leading candidate to be Mayor of London, Daniel Korski, who dropped out of the race this week to be the person who stands against Sadiq Khan after he was essentially reported publicly for groping the producer Daisy Goodwin many years ago in Downing Street. It's something he denied, but he's decided that his position is untenable. And that's an interesting story in itself. But the other thing that I find fascinating about what's going on with the Conservatives in London is that they are really struggling to find a serious candidate to put forward in the biggest and most important city in the country, uh, you know, a quarter of the population, roughly speaking. And they've essentially given up. And Daniel Korski was considered the best choice because he was young, bright, he'd be modernizing and interesting. And they're really struggling to find somebody. And they've said in his absence, they're not going to put a new third choice into the pot to be the three contenders who go to the members. They're going to persist with the remaining two, who are hardly household names, even in the political ferment. And it just, to me, it speaks to Tory despair in London. And giving up on a city like this seems to me uh, a state, uh, an, a, an indication of their malaise generally. Yeah. And I, what I found interesting about that is that given a lot of anger, particularly in the suburbs, the kind of blue donut that, that circles greater London, I think that there is anger about the uh, ultra low emission zone, the ULEZ. Um, I've been to Uxbridge and we'll talk about that a bit later in the podcast. But it seemed to me this could have been, if any year they had a chance, this could have been it. Also, I completely agree with you, Robert, that actually all the parties seem to see mayoral candidacies as a sort of really low-tier issue and they only pay attention at the last possible minute. And often it's a very uninspiring choice for Londoners, which is really inadequate, I believe. And bizarre, given it's a good platform. Absolutely. It's a good platform. It's a great power base, actually, as a stepping stone if you want to be party leader and potential candidate for prime minister, actually. And Miranda, what's been capturing your attention? Well, on Wednesday night in the House of Lords, there are a bunch of 
crucial votes on the government's controversial illegal migration bill, on which they were in fact defeated on some key amendments. And a sign of the government's panic about these potential defeats was the fact that Lord Evgeny Lebedev of the Evening Standard was spotted there in the House of Lords. He is quite a controversial peer. His appointment by Boris Johnson is a matter being picked over in many news stories about various concerns being overridden to get him into the House of Lords. He's spoken once, he's never voted, but even he was was hanging around the House of Lords in his jeans was a somewhat shocked comment from a correspondent about seeing him there. But there we are, the government's really worried about the power of the House of Lords to overturn some of these pieces of legislation that they think are populist, but a lot of the legal experts and human rights type people in the House of Lords think are undermining the UK's international obligation towards refugees. It does make you think, with all the controversies surrounding the UK Second Chamber, whether actually Labour, if they do get into government next year, might actually have the impetus to finally get some reform through. Well, except that they're going to have to stuff it with their own people, aren't they, to get their own bills through, Robert? I don't, and you're I, shaking I, I your head, Robert. I, I know Labour are committed to doing this, but I just think if and when they get to power, they've got so many fun things that are of real importance to voters now. And of course it matters what the status of the second chamber, and of course it makes a difference to the nature of our politics. But I just think they're going to look at this and think, do we really want to open this can of worms? Because the problem with the House of Lords has never been making the argument that it's an illegitimate chamber. The problem has been, what the hell do you put in its place and what powers do you give it? And I, I just, a part of me just thinks, I bet we get to the election after next and they haven't done it. Well, let's move on to one of the big stories of the week, which has been around Thames Water, overwhelmed by £14 billion of debt, and it's not the only water company causing concern. To give us an update on how we got to this point, we're very lucky today to have the FT's Jill Plimmer, the FT's infrastructure correspondent. Hi, Jill. Hello. So, Jill, just to start with, and very briefly, can you give us a little bit of a potted history of how we got here? 35 years ago, Thatcher privatised the water industry. What's happened since? Well... One issue is that at the beginning of privatisation, Thatcher, of course, thought debt was a great thing. The idea was that companies would raise debt and equity and that would be put into water infrastructure and paid by customers through their bills over the long term. And the trouble is that they didn't really impose any checks or balances on that. So Ofwat, which is the water regulator, essentially didn't impose any controls and watch for financial engineering. So almost from the start, they began raising the debt, as they should have done, but then it accelerated and it wasn't invested in infrastructure to the extent that we hoped. And here we are today with some of the companies overburdened with debt, interest rates rising, and they're under pressure. And now we know that the government has drawn up contingency plans for temporary nationalisation of Thames Water, but there's concern across the sector, isn't there? £60 billion worth of debt affecting all the companies. What happens in the immediate next week or two, do you think? Clearly, it's an unfolding story. Thames Water is expected to release its accounts next week, so we should find out a bit more uh, either before then or then. Um, And all the companies, in fact, are due to report over the next couple of months. So we should get a clearer picture of where things are. But... I think the main thing to remember really is that customer services shouldn't be affected whatever happens. We're not quite clear whether companies will go bust or not, but either way, the government would step in, take control, 
and that either temporarily renationalise it and then try and sell it to whom we don't know, or they just keep running them. No, you're right to reassure people that the taps aren't about to uh, run dry. Who's to blame for this situation? Is it corporate greed? Is it poor regulation? And I do know, I think you've written about how there was a wobble around Southern Water back in 2021. Should more action have been taken in the past couple of years to prevent this? Well, it, I mean, off what has taken more action over the past few years, I mean, for a long time, it really thought that it wasn't its remit to look at the company's structures as long as they were doing their job, keeping customer bills down because, as the regulator, it sets exactly how high customers' bills should be and it also defines what they should invest in and how quickly. So it really saw that as its job and it didn't see it as monitoring the companies themselves. And it has, since about 2015, stepped up pressure on the companies substantially. And again, this year and last, it is taking more action. I mean, it's up to you whether you think that they should have been stricter sooner. And just throwing forward, I'm struck that uh, George Eustace, the former Environment Secretary, has said there's now such a toxic political debate around this whole industry, it's going to make it a lot harder to raise the capital that's needed. Um, Is that your take? I think that's part of it. But I mean, I think you can't ignore the serious failures. I mean, the fact that, you know, Blackpool beaches were closed last week, that lots of the beaches around England have been closed several times in the past year is absolutely appalling, really. We paid for services and they haven't been delivered. We've got leaking pipes and the prospect of drought. And this is really an outrage. So to sort of blame people for complaining just doesn't seem fair. No, well, I think that's a really, really good point. And just finally, give us an international comparison. I mean, it's often said water in this country is too cheap. Is that true when we look across likewise developed nations? It's pretty hard to compare, but I mean, the real point about British water is Britain is the only country to have privatised its water system. You know, other countries have sometimes given control to private companies on long-term contracts or done quasi sort of arm's length bodies, but no one has actually sort of wholesale given all the water infrastructure to private companies and said, look, you look after this and that's it. Miranda, Robert, you're both uh, dying to jump in here. Jill, I was just struck by, you know, DEFRA's own figures say that cost of actually stopping the sewage outflows, which seem to most upset the public, they reckon it's between £350 billion and £600 billion. I mean, is it actually affordable to sort out this mess for either the current government or an incoming Labour government, potentially? To be totally honest, I'm not sure about those figures. I suspect they were sort of made up on the back of a fag packet type thing. <laughs> I mean, that that's the cost, I think, of separating sewage from water. For the and whole that, of England. Yes, and that would be a good thing. And you could also separate the grey water so that we don't water our gardens with treated waters. They were all good ideas and other countries do manage to do that. But there's a lot of smaller things that could be done that could be, you know, just improving the sewage treatment works would be a good start. And we know that they haven't had enough investment over the past years. Isn't it also the case that Macquarie, the company that in the end rescued Southern Water, was one of the companies actually made out like bandits on Thames Water and then bailed? So, I mean, there are questions to be asked about why you're going back to them. Yes. Giving them another water company, albeit the government didn't have a lot of choice at the time, I suspect. I agree. Yeah, totally. I mean, debt rose to £10 billion at Thames Water under... Macquarie's ownership and 
then the reward for that is to be given another water company or majority shareholding in it a couple of years later. And also at Thames, you know, Thames received a massive £20 million fine for dumping sewage into the Thames, which the judge decided was borderline deliberate, as he called it. And then what's their reward they get to take over at Southern Water? I mean, politically, I don't know what the rest of you think. I've been really struck this week of, you know, trying to commission for our pages some solutions to this problem. People are unwilling to come forward and write because nobody's quite sure what the answer is. And it's very striking that the opposition parties are not necessarily coming forward with a plan which they feel confident about selling. Well, it's over, isn't it? I mean, the point is, the damage has been done. You know, the wealth has been extracted. The money's yeah. been extracted from these companies. So all you can do is pick up the pieces. And the thing that really strikes me about it all is that a government, you know, going all the way back to the conservative governments that privatised water, which thought it understood the markets and believed in the markets, fundamentally didn't understand what the companies it gave these assets to were going to do with it. So I saw one figure, Jill will tell me if I'm wrong, like 72 billion taken out of all the water companies. Um, you know, so the point is the government got played at its own yes. market game by people who understood the financial world better than they did. But also yes. they create they created a system with no competition. So it's it's regional monopolies. So all of the things which should make a market system work for the consumer were not there in the structure they chose. I is think that part of the problem? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's sort of one of the craziest things is just how hard is it to run a water company? I mean, you know, there's no great innovation involved. I, I mean, I've been struck, Jill, by the organogram showing the structures of, uh, you know, the way this industry is run, completely Byzantine. But it also makes me concerned that perhaps that's one reason why the opposition haven't really come up with any sort of nifty or politically compelling plan to overhaul the industry either so far? I think it's hard. I mean, you know, essentially both Labour and the Conservatives are committed to private sector investment and in infrastructure. And where are all their private sector investors but in water companies? And they don't particularly want to alienate them all. By the way, a side issue is that the second biggest investor in Thames Water is basically the university's pension fund. Mm -hmm. So if you wipe out the shareholders, which you might ordinarily do, then the government's on the hook for university's pensions. Very good point. Jill, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Rishi Sunak's facing trouble on another front this week, of course. His flagship Rwanda policy has been deemed unlawful in the Court of Appeal. Robert, how big a problem is this for the Prime Minister? I'm not sure. I think this was going to go up to the Supreme Court pretty much regardless. But I think it is difficult for Rishi Sunak in the sense that it is the policy that he's putting forward as a solution to the small boat and he can't bring it forward yet. I think they were hoping that if they won in the court, they might be able to get a first flight to Rwanda sometime before the end of this year. Clearly, if it's going to the Supreme Court, um, that's going to dredge it out a bit longer. So it's all going to drag on. On the other hand, it does give him a bit of an alibi to say, you know, well, I would like to do this, but lefty lawyers and the mm. European Convention of Human Rights have stopped me doing it. I wonder if it's even better than that for him and that he's now got a sort of the bogeyman to sort of set his face against, you know, not just an excuse, but a foil to sort of fight the next election on. I don't know if it's big enough to fight the next election on. The problem is, I think, that he's got these five pledges, and even though the pledges themselves are slightly more delicately worded than people think, the way they're understood by the public, these are the five things I'll do, and by doing them, you will see that I am a prime minister worth keeping. The problem is, for whatever reason, be it his fault or other faults, these pledges are not going to be met, and 
his efforts to stop the boats by deporting people to Rwanda have been frustrated. So, yes, he's got some excuses. On the other hand, the country isn't really looking for excuses. So I think if he can't meet his targets, that's more problematic in the end. And of course, Miranda, the whole point of the Rwanda policy is to deter people from making that channel crossing and therefore bring down the numbers eventually that way. But certainly what I pick up from MPs, you know, their post bags are chock-a-block full with, is anger about the hotel bills and the existence in their constituencies throughout the UK of people living in what, you know, their voters or some of them think sounds like the lap of luxury and things that they would ordinarily save up to do as a treat. There doesn't seem to be any chance that by the end of this year that £7 million a day hotel bill is going to be tackled either, does it? No, absolutely not. And I think that your point reinforces Roberts, which is that actually on this policy, the thing that matters is can Rishi Sunak actually deliver and can he solve the problem? I think, I mean, it may be slightly useful to him for some sections of the Tory vote to be able to say, oh, the court's enemies of the people, replay that kind of old theme tune of the populist Brexit years. But actually, Rishi Sunak is supposed to be selling something completely different to Boris Johnson. He's supposed to be selling competence and managerialism. And if you can't therefore manage a problem, you've got a much, much bigger issue with the electorate. You're quite right about those post bags. You know, Andrew Mitchell, who's back in government now, but he had actually criticised the Rwanda plan on the basis that the the costs were so great it would be cheaper to put everyone up at the Ritz, you know, and you've got a new government estimate saying that it would cost £170,000 per person to, you know, ship them off to Rwanda anyway. You've also got the question that Rwanda is the most densely populated country in Africa with a regime of questionable reputation. There are so many problems with this policy And if it doesn't help with his Stop the Boats pledge, then he's got a far wider problem with the electorate than some sort of clever, clever culture war scheme to try and brand the courts as a block on delivery. And and Robert, it's not just Sunak who's troubled by the latest development. It's Suella Braverman as well, isn't it? Does it feel to you like her star's on the wane a bit as a sort of alternative power base for the right of the party, a potential future leader? It's quite hard for me to judge because under no normal metric would her star have been on the rise in the first place. (laughs) I suppose I would say she still looks like the candidate of the sort of, of the angry right. And I don't see who else there is yet. I mean, others like Kemi Badenoch, who I think is a more obvious candidate because she's got a foot in both camps of the angry right and also the bit bit more pragmatic right. Um, So I don't know who there is who oust Suella Braverman in that case, unless it's somebody like, I don't know, Simon Clark, one of the sort of trust backers who, who throws their hat into the ring in a future contest. One of the other points is, obviously, Rishi Sunak doesn't want to pull out of the European Convention of Human Rights. Otherwise, he'd have structured policy that way. His whole premise is, I want to do everything but pull out of it. So I, I think Suella Braverman is, is on a downward slope, probably. But whether her party sees it that way, I don't know. And the other point, by the way, is we're talking about small boats. I mean, Legal migration is what's agitating a lot of people now. I mean, the the net number uh, last time was around 600,000, wasn't it? And obviously there were exceptional circumstances. But actually a lot of the people who are most agitated about small boats are also getting more and more wound up about legal migration. So I still think she's heading for a conflict with Rishi Sunak on that before the end of this parliament. I must say, this topic does make me despair, though, because when I first went to work in politics in 1995... As a humble researcher, one of the main things you had to deal with in an MP's office was 
the absolute inadequacy of the asylum system. And it's been chaos for decades and it's still chaos. Well, let's just move on finally to Uxbridge. We know we've got three by-elections coming up in the next three weeks. Um, We'll do a little bit of a spotlight on each of those. And on Thursday, I went with Audrey, um, one of the producers of this podcast, to Uxbridge to speak to some of the good folks there. Here's what they had to say. I'm fed up with the whole bunch of them, to be perfectly honest. That's how I actually feel. I've never felt like that. I've always felt strongly about a particular party. Is ULES important to you? Very, very important, yeah. Would that stop you voting Labour? Yeah, 100%. I mean, all of my children are struggling. No one can move out, no one can buy a house. They're struggling to afford the cars. My daughter needs her car. Everything's everything's like a struggle at the moment, you know? I haven't made my mind yet. I don't think it will be Conservative. On what basis? Boris Johnson? Boris Johnson, yeah. Not particularly happy about the way he carried on. He lied, continually lied. I mean, have you voted Conservative in the past? All your life? I did belong to Conservative Club when my father was alive, so yeah. And at the moment, you're not decided, but you're swaying one direction? Definitely not Labour, but I don't know at the moment which way I'm going to go. Actually, just tactically, I probably will vote for Labour because something needs to be done to get rid of this government. You mentioned when we walked up to you, you had strong opinions on Boris Johnson. Yeah, he's an absolute fool. He's absolutely desecrated this poor country, responsible for so much damage, division, and haven't got any time for him. I'm very happy to see the back of him. Well, I must admit, I used to like Boris. For all his faults, you know, he kept me voting for him. So that's just a flavour of what we heard. Uh, Boris Johnson was uh, exciting opinions, both for and against. We didn't find anyone who uh, took the middle ground on that. But there was one theme throughout as well that actually throws back to something you've written about this week, Robert, in a brilliant column about the sort of lack of hope being offered by any party. There wasn't a great appetite for Labour either among most of the people we spoke to. There was just this sense that things feel a bit bleak at the moment. Yeah, and I think it's a worry for the nature of politics in general. But you have this clear sense that we're going into an election where the voters don't believe it's going to get better whatever happens. So it's very clear that the public mood has shifted, I think, decisively and irrevocably against the Conservatives and do not believe they can get it back and, and stay in power. But there just isn't this excitement or enthusiasm for the Labour Party. And obviously, it's very unfair to keep harking back to Tony Blair, but we can remember how excited people were about Blair coming in. Now, the economy was far better. There were more grounds for hope than there are now. But the truth is, people are looking at Labour and there's a sort of resignation that says, well, if we want the Tories out, this is what we have to do. But you just do not find people saying, I'm enthused by Labour's plans for this or I believe Labour will fix that. And I think that's a worry because I think there's a fatalism that's seeping into politics, which is dangerous. One of the things that particularly strikes me, I know it's a small thing in this room, Labour's campaign on broken Britain, and we can have an argument as to whether Britain is actually broken or just Mm -hmm. struggling, but it seems to me to feed into the hopelessness a bit. Now, I know it's a good attack line. I know it works as a message. But actually, at some point, people will want Labour to say, we can be better. We can do better than this. Broken Britain doesn't help me in all of the problems I've got with my NHS waiting lists or my schools or the cost of living. You know, if it's broken, how are you going to fix it? And I think the challenge for Labour in the next year is to find a way to put some legitimate hope 
into the grounds of the people they expect people to vote for them. And they've got to do that whilst keeping within the really tight spending restrictions set down by Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor. Mm-hmm. So it's an incredibly tricky fine line for Labour to try to walk. I totally agreed with Robert's column. I looked at that polling data as well a few weeks ago, and it's really striking. On, for example, the cost of living, people have no faith in the ability of any party to actually sort it out for them. So there is that fatalism that you talk about. And so Labour's got to try and inject. Do you remember that famous disparaging remark of Sarah Palin about Obama, how's that hopey changey thing going for you? Mm. But, you know, you need the hopey changey thing in politics, particularly if you're a party of the progressive centre-left and you're actually hoping to come in and be allowed to transform the country to change people's lives. We talk about offering hope as if it's like positive, you know, rainbows and, you know, and, and whatever. No, it should but be actually, real, measurable. Sometimes, sometimes it just has to be a plan. If you think back to... David Cameron in 2010, of course, he didn't go all the way and win the election outright. But one of the things they were saying is, we're going to fix this mess and it will be hard and it will be painful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, God knows it was. But that message was, there's a mess, we're going to fix it. So I think Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer are going to have to unveil some extra tax rises, some extra revenue raises. They'll probably wait till after the budget next year, but they are going to have to do this because there have been, you know, years of underinvestment in public services and however much reform you want to offer, you are going to have to spend somewhere along the line and people want to know what that money is going to be. Do you think they're going to tackle some of the sort of tax reliefs that, you know, are very much sort of targeted at vested interests and frankly, quite regressive? Well, there have been some like carried interests. They've already announced, I think they're going to do um, the private school things, but a lot of these don't raise very much money. But I think there are a range of areas. I don't know that any of these are their policy, but it seems to be obvious to look at. They will look at capital gains tax mm-hmm. and equalising it with income tax. They might look at the exemption that stops you paying national insurance once you reach pension age if you carry on working. They might look at some kind of wealth taxes. Uh, they might look at the tax relief you offer people saving for their pensions, or they might bring it down to the lower rate of tax, not let you claim it at the higher rate. I mean, there are lots of things they could do which might generate money Um, and won't hit the poorest. Uh, And I just think they're going to have to do some of them. And I suspect they know this. And I think next year we will see at least a couple of these announced. See, my guess would be they'll wait till after the election and then with the majority go ahead and do it. Because that's what Gordon Brown did with his uh, dividend tax raid. Well, actually, actually, when you you mentioned Gordon Brown, uh, one grandee I was talking to this week said that they thought Rachel Reeves was following the Gordon Brown playbook in exactly the right way, to some extent, with the sort of prudence with purpose, on the prudence side of it, really fixing those fiscal rules, as you say, uh, Miranda, but, but what's without the purpose? the purpose? Exactly so. And I also was talking to a former Labour cabinet minister who was saying there's this big hole. And also, there are sort of party grandees also starting to say, how can you actually be pointing the way to greater prosperity for the nation and the funds to pay for, for example, improving the NHS, without starting to talk about the disadvantages of being outside the single market and that Brexit conversation that they still don't really want to have. So there's also a kind of conversation in some Labour circles about how sustainable it is to totally ignore the topic of Brexit forever. I think the big change might come when Sue Gray comes in and there's a growing expectation now, we're going to hear quite soon about when she's allowed to start work. Whispers I've heard is that, you know, there's a suggestion, there's been a slight go slow to wait until she's in place and then we might see rocket boosters put, put up some of this. But you know what? It's very different. We're still waiting for Sue Gray. <laughs> <laughs> We're still waiting for Sue Gray. It's like Godot. But 
you know, having a competent chief of staff is not the same thing as having a policy plan as what you're going to do for your sure. first 100 days and your first year in power where you can show to the nation that you're making some change that they can feel. But the thing a lot of people say is um, Labour doesn't have a lot of expertise around the policy side of things, the people actually writing the manifesto. And I think there's this idea that Sue Gray knows where the talent is hiding and will be able mm. to put some of that in I, place. I, I mean, I think, you're sceptical, Robert. I think you're right. They don't have a lot of expertise for, for obvious reasons. Um, I also I would add, I don't think, I'm not in the camp that says Keir Starmer's making terrible mistakes. I think actually he's got most things right. Um, but I do think there is this question as to whether what we're seeing is brilliant strategic caution or a bit of indecision at times. Most of what he's doing strategically seems to me to be right, but I just think they need to infuse this with some evidence to people that their lives will get better. They, they need a few policies that are kind of touchstone policies that are deliverable and also tell you something about the kind of country they want us all to live in with Labour in power. Like, for example, Blair's minimum wage promise showed mm -hmm. you something that you could deliver that was measurable but also had a kind of sense of a more equal nation where things were fairer they don't really have those touchstone policies to offer at the moment yeah. they need one or two three four ideally a whole a whole platform but you know you need that and they have to speak to ordinary life I mean, what people actually want to hear about is gp waiting times yeah and, you know, my kids at school and how I can't afford things. And, and the, so Miranda's exactly right, but it's got to speak to those points. Well, let's see how we get on. So at the moment, I think they've been concentrating on their very abstract five missions. Let's finish up with Cultural Fix. What are you excited about this week that you've done or doing this weekend? Well, I, f I feel a bit ridiculous saying this after the conversation we had about sewage, but I've been swimming in the rivers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! Yeah. Which one? I had, I had a wonderful. Oh, that explains it. Maybe. Oh dear, no! <laughs> I had a lovely swim in the Serpentine early one morning. Gorgeous, and I also spent the weekend swimming in the Thames upstream, which was fabulous. I can't recommend it highly enough. But I did shower afterwards. Lucy, what about you? <laughs> Well, I'm going to a wedding this weekend where one of the grooms uh, is German and I'm very excited to get involved in, and I hope I pronounced this correctly, the Polterabend, which is the traditional German custom of smashing porcelain the night before the wedding huh. um, with the shards bringing good luck. And I didn't know the Germans did this. Expensive. Yeah. Well, actually, well, they've asked every guest to bring their own and I've got a particularly <laughs> ugly gravy, gravy tureen that I inherited that I can't wait to um, yeah, smash. I can pieces. donate if you need more. <laughs> Robert, how about you? Okay, so um, actually, I, I always feel inadequate in this when Stephen is here because he's a human arts council and he's always done everything you can possibly do in a city. Um, on, on Saturday, I'm going to see him pulp at Finsbury Park, which I was very excited about. So I mentioned it to my daughter who said, oh, but yeah, they're on with wet leg. That's much more interesting. So now I've been on a Spotify list trying to find out about wet leg. It's quite funny, isn't it? Wet leg are kind of a much bigger deal now than pulp, at least to some quarters of the, of the, of of the, of the population. <laughs> well, well, let's leave it there. That's it for this episode of the FT's Political Fix. If you like the podcast, do subscribe. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also appreciate positive reviews and ratings. It really helps spread the word. Political Fix was presented by me, Lucy Fisher, and produced by Anna Dedder and Audrey Tinlin. Manuela Saragosa is the executive producer. Original music and sound engineering by Breen Turner. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. We'll meet again here, same time, same place, next week.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.